It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you are tuning in because we're continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm just going to recap just a little bit of what you may have missed last week or or for you know those who have followed week after week. Maybe we just need a little reminder of what we covered. I know it gets uh, there's a lot going on throughout the week. So if you ever do miss these broadcasts, you can go to calvaryfountain.com and there under audio and video, there's a link there. You can follow the sermons online as well as uh, go back and listen to these broadcasts. Our, our podcast subscription is there. So uh, please Please feel free to, to go t- listen to that and share with your friends. So let's just pick up where we left off and uh, just recap here just a little bit of this because it's a very serious subject that Paul is covering here. It looks initially like what he's doing is assessing the situation that's all around the church, but what he's going to do is drive it right back to us as believers. We call ourselves Christians, but unfortunately it appears to the rest of the world that there is no difference. Uh, it seems to be a label without transformation. And we know that that what happens, according to Romans chapter 12, if we truly have taken up our cross to follow him, if we're bond servants of Jesus Christ, then what happens is our minds are transformed. There's a washing and renewing of our mind that happens through this process called sanctification. As we're justified, then we're glorified. And in the middle of this is the sanctification process, like the refiner's fire, where we start to put on the mind of Christ. We start to look at things differently, mature in our faith, moving from milk to meat. So let's recap here. Verse 9 through 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's what we read. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the reason why he says this, says this clearly, what we find are individuals who, who repent, they're transformed. What happens is they become a new creation, especially as they're baptized, as they commit their life to Jesus Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Psalm 103 t- tells us that the that these sins are removed for as far east is from the west, never for the two to meet. And then we see again in Hebrews that the Father forgets. Uh, He doesn't remember their iniquities or lawless deeds anymore. So this is not the title of the one who is now a follower of Jesus Christ. They they have a new name. They, They have a new mission, a new responsibility. They ultimately become a new creation, reborn, in Jesus Christ. So this is not a, an indication then of individuals who are like this, have these titles, and are also Christian. Rather, he, he brings this full circle here in a moment, as you'll see. But if there is no fear of God, then the flesh will always invent new ways of breaking God's heart. You know, the United States became the 19th country in the world out of 195, 199 countries to nationally legitimize same-sex marriage and elevate sin to the level of law. And the Bible tells us that calling evil good and good evil will bring disaster on those who do it, according to Isaiah 5.20 and Romans 1.18-32. 
We'll read later, or actually we already read this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19. Going back here for a moment, we read, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. It didn't start with the legal recognition of same-sex marriage. Rather, we look through our history, it's a turning up the pot of heat, if you will. You've heard that analogy that, you know, you slow boil and the water raises its in a temperature and you slowly acclimate to that temperature and suddenly you're in a full boil and you didn't even realize that the temperature was getting up there. It was increasing every single day. So considering the fact that there was a ruling to remove prayer and Bibles from schools in 1962 with only a few years Right after that, SAT scores plummeted, crime and pregnancy rates in schools escalated, and in the American high school students started to regularly finish last or near the bottom in literacy, math, and science testing. How about in 1973 when Roe v. Wade, that decision was made over, you know, now you know, we're going on, what, 46 years ago? More than over 60 million babies have died. More than 60 million babies have died. Alcoholism is at an all-time high. 97,000 students are raped in America each year, ages 18 to 24, after alcohol abuse. So alcohol abuse now costs Americans $223.5 billion annually, and 24 million Americans suffer from alcohol abuse, and 17 million suffer from alcohol use disorders. That's causing these individuals not only to, to consume unhealthy amounts of alcohol, but to, to take action thereafter to their behaviors that are, in, that are altered as a result of this, then are leading to even high uh, cases of rape all across the country directly attributed to alcohol abuse. Drug use is on the rise with nearly 25 million Americans using illicit drugs and counting. So with regard to sexual immorality, every second, $3,075 is being spent on pornography in America. 77% of Americans view pornography at least once a month, 2.5 billion emails per day in the U.S. are pornographic. And 40 million Americans, about uh, roughly 12% of the population, are regular visitors to porn sites. And 12% of all websites, or roughly 26 million, almost 27 million websites, are pornographic in nature. And the highest viewership, one of the highest days, is on Sunday. Now, and then we start to look at another instance here about sex trafficking. Atlanta is one of the highest in the world with more than $300 million being transacted through the selling of women as property. It's been been estimated that pimps in Atlanta make $33,000 per week selling women. And this is, you know, happening right here even in our backyard. I mean, Denver is now number seven on the list worldwide with $40 million in sex trafficking. So America, like Corinth, is in desperate need of God. And Christians have been in this place before. We we must humble ourselves, pray, intercede, not only for the now, but for generations to come. We are God's people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will he hear from heaven, will forgive our sin and heal our land. Here's what the prophet Isaiah had to say on this just before Israel went into captivity. 
You go to Isaiah chapter 1, and then I'll give you just a, a few of the verses there in chapter 1. He says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One. They are utterly estranged. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Listen, we need a holy fear of God once more, a reverence for his holy name. Now, he tells us, let us gather then before the Lord and pray and seek his face and repent as I just cited before from 2 Chronicles 7.14. So we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God, period. Romans 3.23. All sin is offensive to God. So we have to note the seriousness here of what the Apostle Paul is calling out of sin. He even calls out covetousness or greed from 1 Corinthians 5, 10 to 11, 6 and 8. Uh, 6 verse 8, greed may manifest itself as a desire for what one should not have, according to Exodus 20, 17, and, Rev- and Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Or it may be a desire, an excessive desire, for what one may legitimately have, from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, and Colossians 3, 5. So the sins enumerated here in, in chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, they, they share this common trait of being self-indulgent, i.e. self-serving, which is ultimately the core of sin from 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. So here's the unfortunate reality, as we talked about a little bit last week. The Corinthian Christians were committing many of the sins mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. This wasn't foreign to them as it should have been. It was in their own midst. Some of them were involved in coveting, and swindling, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 8, some even into adultery and fornication of chapter 5, verse 1 and 6, 15, idolatry of chapter 10, verse 14, and even drunkenness and reviling from chapter 11 and chapter 4. So the fact is that some of the believers in this group of Christians were engaging in sin that was unacceptable behavior as ambassadors for Christ. They forgot who they were as saints of the Most High, and thus were were being deceived and and living like and acting like the unbelievers that they were called to reach to, to minister to, to be examples to, to be light in the dark places. So with the breakdown in the home today, it's really no wonder the world is seeking an alternative to traditional marriage. I mean, divorce, abuse, drunkenness, sexual sin have even permeated the traditional families And we need revival in our homes today across the nation that husbands would love their wives, that women would respect their husbands, and children honor their parents. We need to become the lights in our community that draw people to God, not push them away with hypocrisy stamped on our foreheads. Go back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 5 on that. We have collectively justified sin to the world by allowing our homes to become incubators of sin rather than a place of worship. 
We need to return to the God of our fathers. So don't you see the context here? If we forget who we are in Christ, then our behavior will look just like the world. And this flies in the face of what Jesus Christ did on that cross for us. Go back and read 1 John 4, 10 to 20 on that. And that's why here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we, we see that believers will sue each other. They start to lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery, covet. The list goes on and on when they have forgotten who their first love is. And some of us are running laps with no finish line in sight. You're, you're running because you know that's better than walking, but you don't know what you're running toward. And Paul will address that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 of running the race. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Therefore, run in such a way as to get the prize. Now, what Paul informs the Corinthians that they too were previously like the wicked there in their city of Corinth. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. I love that. They were set apart as God's children. They've already been washed and forgiven. God has already seen the finished work. They're now in the sanctification process. So yes, all of that needs to be filtered out. So yes, believers will make mistakes. They will fall back into the ruts from time to time. Go back and read Haggai on that, of what happens when when we do lose sight of the prize and find ourselves getting stuck into bad habits, bad addictions, things that do not please God as we try to fill that void with anything other than Him. And He loves us too much to fall in love with the world. He doesn't want us to fall in love with the world. Go back and read Hosea chapter 2 on that. So when we look now to verses 12 to 20, Paul is going to focus on the issue of immorality, the one that he's now been really highlighting here, verses 9 to 10, specifically sexual immorality. Now listen, each year, an estimated 2.3 million teenagers enter tanning parlors, which has helped the indoor tanning business ultimately become a $5 billion a year industry. And on their own, these numbers, they may not seem all that surprising or noteworthy, but they, they become a dangerous place when you, when you look at it to medical discoveries that have recently occurred. I mean, since 1975, the occurrence of melanoma, the most lethal form of skin cancer, has doubled in the United States among women ages 15 to 29. And the World Health Organization is also taking notice. It estimates that 60,000 people die each year around the world because of excessive UV exposure. And they urge teenagers, especially youth, young people in the ages of 20s and, and, and you know even the young 30s, uh, even the ones under 18 even, just to avoid indoor tanning altogether. But many experts fear that teenagers will not change their behavior. Even in the light of such dangerous consequences, when, they, when you take into account many articles that have recently come out, even in Time magazine, they cited a two, two individuals, two 16-year-old girls who were interviewed. One girl said that all the girls who are really tanned all throughout the year, they're the popular girls. And guys are always complimenting their girls, these girls on their tans. And another girl who visits a tanning parlor several times a week acknowledged that she is willing to risk her health for short-term reward. Her rationale was this. It may make my skin wrinkle a little bit earlier, but I'm going to look good while I can. 
Now, short-term pleasure leads to long-term disaster, and nowhere is this truer than the area of sexual immorality. For a few minutes of pleasure, and I put that in quotes, countless men and women will throw their lives away every single day. So just think for a moment about the potential consequences of sexual sin. They lose fellowship with God. There may then follow with divorce, disease, uh, out-of-wedlock pregnancies, guilt, uh, you know, estrangement from the family and friends, psychological and financial loss, damage to one's reputation, countless other uh, ripple effects from these decisions. And this reality then ought to keep us from sexual sin. Yet, if we're honest, most people assume that they're the exception, that, that those consequences won't happen to them. And honestly, we believe that these things will never happen to us, so we go on our own merry way and just keep living a life of sin until something happens and then wondered, how did this happen? Now, Paul then reminds us here, he says, your body is God's body. So number one is to we're to refuse to be mastered by our flesh. Here's what he says, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So in this verse, Paul seems to be adapting and qualifying, but a saying for his own purposes. And then Paul writes, all things are lawful for me. And he will say this again in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 24, in which we read, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So we must not assume nor suggest that Paul is saying that he can do anything he wants, even in violation of the laws of God. Rather, in context, he's saying, what is lawful is lawful for me as well, but I choose to restrict myself even from what is lawful. That he is deciding to do what is in the best interest of his testimony before others and unto Almighty God. And he addressed this greatly in Romans chapter 6 to 8, and will even give us some examples here in 1 Corinthians. He addresses the consumption of food sacrificed to idols that we'll read about later in 1 Corinthians 10, and will even give a reasonable argument for why the food is still okay to be consumed, but he willingly restricts himself from so doing because of his mission because of a greater cause. And in fact, he'll speak in a similar manner when addressing marriage in one chapter. As we get to chapter 7 next, he'll affirm that sex between a husband and wife is a beautiful thing that God has created for marriage and for those couples to enjoy. However, Paul chooses to abstain from marriage and thus abstain from sex for the greater cause. So what is lawful must also be weighed against the mission that is before us. In a simple practical context, we can say it is lawful for me to eat a cookie, but should I? And if I do, I must control myself lest I allow what is lawful to become a vice. And the same can be said about the consumption of alcohol. Paul spends more time about the subject of Christian liberty in Galatians chapter 5, and it's all summed up with what we'll read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Every decision must be weighed against that. Does this bring glory to God? Number two, refuse to dishonor God with your body. 
That's what he's really going to cover, verses 13 to 20. Not sure that we'll get to it all here on this broadcast today, but Paul urges that sexual immorality is an offense against God the Father in, in verses 13 to 14 the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 15 to 17, and ultimately even the Holy Spirit of verses 18 to 20. That's how offensive it is. Paul urges that sexual immorality is offense against God the Father, and then he launches into this discussion by explaining the two ways a man's man to a man's heart, ultimately, food and sex. That's what he's going to be talking about here. In verses 13 to 14, we read, "...foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods." But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So this passage is not about food, it's about immorality. So both food and the physical stomach will perish, but sexual immorality doesn't just affect the physical body. It corrupts the spiritual state of the individual as well, which we'll later see again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So Paul contrasts the two to emphasize how God wants us to treat the temple of the Holy Spirit, i.e. our body. So here he simply insists that food and the stomach are temporary, but the impact of sin is eternal. And as we discussed earlier, your body is one with Christ. It's no longer yours. Therefore, when you engage in sexual immorality, you are cheating on Christ ultimately. Since your your body is ultimately designed for the Lord, we can no longer talk about my body. Your body is God's body. And, And that means what we do in our bodies in this life matters greatly to God. And believers in this first century church in Corinth also struggled with how to be faithful to God in total in a, in a culture of total permissiveness. I, they, they were uh, prom, the promiscuity, the, the polygamy, all of these uh, things that were going on, uh, sexual immorality, debauchery was all around them. It was a permissive society, a permissive society, if you will. Everything went. And it seems like that's the way it is today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Now, three times in this one verse, Paul uses the word members. He reminds us that the moment we believed in Jesus Christ, we were grafted into his body and we're now members of Christ. Again, we'll cover this later, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So it's unthinkable to Paul that we would ever be sexually immoral. We no longer belong to ourselves. It's his body. And since we're members with Christ, we take Christ with us wherever we go and into whatever we do. And so Paul, again, will address this to a great deal in 1 Corinthians 12 and describes the very body of Christ. And you may be saying to yourself, well, Paul is is talking about sex with a prostitute, and that's disgusting. I would never do that. There's no love involved, just lust. But there's no way you can compare that relationship to what I have with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, you know, for those who are choosing to have a sexual engagement outside of wedlock. Well, listen, uh, when we are trying to justify sin, we will look for every angle to argue our position. Even though there is undoubtedly a distinction between a one-night stand with a prostitute and a passionate interlude with a steady date, sin is still sin. I don't think anyone would want to argue that since armed robbery is punished more severely than shoplifting, then that makes petty theft okay. 
right? So it's true that Paul's addressing the issue of using the example of prostitution, since that was very uh, a, a common practice even in the temples there in uh, Corinth as they would worship their false gods. But the theme of this whole passage is clearly broader because that is the level by which God views sexual immorality as engaging in prostitution since ultimately we're cheating on Jesus Christ. So fleeing from sexual sin has been addressed since the very beginning and was one of the first seven laws that God gave to man before even the Ten Commandments. They were called the Noahid Seven. And they were the oral commands that God had given to Noah, many recorded through the generations. This, this fleeing from sexual sin that was reiterated by Paul in Acts chapter 15 as a critical instruction to the Gentile church. So the Greek word for immorality, pornea, deals with all kinds of sexual immorality which are addressed throughout Leviticus 18-21 to because God requires that his people remain pure and undefiled since we are the bride of Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22-33. to So Paul will address the issue in nine of his 14 letters. And there are more than a hundred scriptures related to the subject of sexual immorality and the push for us to remain sexually pure, so we better pay attention. So we're going to stop there. We'll start up in verses 16 to 17 next week, because it just gets even better, uh, I believe more convicting on this subject. So if you have someone who is on the fence on this issue, if you're dealing with a teenager right now, uh, maybe someone who's single and trying to justify sex out of marriage, uh, any of these particular subjects, this is the kind of series you want to in- introduce them to. So if you want the sermon notes, if you want to go through this again at your leisure, get prepared, get get armed up with the truth, so that way you can address these issues uh, knowledgeably, but lovingly, filled with grace still, but firm in truth, then we'd be happy to send you this information. So please reach out to us at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Again, you can learn more at Calvary Fountain com and you can learn more about the whole ministry. We'd love to worship with you. Services are at 8 a.m. and at 10 a.m., and, and so we're going through the Bible verse by verse. Right now, we are uh, going through Haggai, and uh, we're going to be going through the book of Ruth next, followed by Matthew. Wonderful studies ahead. So again, if you're looking by for verse-by-verse teaching, you want to go deeper with a body of believers, even through small groups on a weekly basis, you can learn more at calvaryfountain.com. This message and many others are there at that website. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Take care.